Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome you all to the seminar today. I've been asked by Stephen Fung to uh, chair this as he is otherwise occupied and uh, Louis, is, Louis is on leave. Uh, it's my pleasure today to introduce a, a colleague of many years, over 30 years, a uh, colleague, Siyan uh, uh, Islam. Uh, Jan came to Griffith in 1989 and uh, was a stalwart in teaching in the department until he decided to leave for greener pastures to the ILO in Geneva and get some practical experience as an economist, which means that he can uh, very easily fulfill Danny Roddick's uh, notion that all models must be not seen as simply truth, but must be tested at each event in the field. And so today we're going to see neoliberal action in action, uh, post-communist post state in Eurasia in Georgia, uh, where Jan is able to uh, uh, test the models and give us his wisdom. Jan, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, David. Indeed, we do go back a long way. Uh, 1989, our, our vintage show, I guess, in terms of how long we've been around here. Um, thank you very much for coming along. It's a pleasure, as always, to have the opportunity to uh, share my ideas on different things that I do. Um, this one, uh, which is what I call neoliberalism in action, uh, is a case study of Georgia. I deliberately put in Eurasia. I wanted to put in Asia in there, given there's Griffith Asia Institute. And, but I will try and define what I mean by Eurasia in here uh, from the perspective of uh, the OECD. Uh, let me first uh, start by uh, acknowledging uh, that the work that is, uh, I'm presenting was undertaken with the support of ILO Moscow. Uh, now, uh, ILO Moscow is a regional office of ILO Geneva, which is where the headquarters is, where I used to work for quite a few years. And its jurisdiction uh, spreads across Central Asia and, and Europe. And Georgia comes under that jurisdiction. So I was asked to do some field work in November 2018 as part of a series of uh, countries that I've been involved with there, which I will show you a little later. And the field work essentially entails uh, sort of doing semi-structured interviews with uh, ministry officials, with uh, representatives of employers and unions. So essentially the so-called tripartite structure of the ILO where you're supposed to talk to the government, uh, talk to employers, and, and to workers' representatives. So this particular work is really uh, based on that. Um, of course, I bear responsibility for errors and omissions because I don't want to hold the ILO responsible for any rookie errors that I commit uh, in making this presentation. My regret is that I cannot uh, convert it into or even make an attempt to convert it into a scholarly publication because these are supposed to be reports that go as inputs into government policy documents and member states of the ILO typically are not terribly keen to have them released. And I can assure you that I do not use the word neoliberalism in that report. And I'll, I'll, I'll briefly explain why, but I have the freedom here to, to use that particular term. So I thought I would draw on this uh, because it's, a, it's a, a nice example of a particular country, rather small, about 4 million people, where this whole notion of, of neoliberalism, to be defined a little later, uh, was taken quite seriously for a while and continues to be taken seriously for a while. So uh, let me first uh, start with this notion of where does Georgia sit in terms of Eurasia. And uh, the Eurasian zone, as defined by the OECD, includes 13 countries, as you can see. Uh, it stretches from the borders of the European Union to the far east, uh, Afghanistan, and all the way down to Uzbekistan. I haven't been to Afghanistan, uh, but I've visited Armenia, um, did a bit of work there. Azerbaijan did a bit of work there. Uh, all for the ILO and Georgia now also for the ILO. Uh, later tonight, sort of very early morning, I'll be going to Tashkent in Uzbekistan um, in order to carry out very similar work. 
So when I do this kind of work, essentially, as I said, I do interviews, write up a report, mix it with some available primary and secondary data, and try and tell a story. The story follows a familiar line, uh, which is what I call the neoliberalism in action line. Unfortunately, I can't use the term. And the reason why I can't use the term neoliberalism is that it is regarded as a term of abuse by, uh, by many policymakers. And hence, I avoid using the term neoliberal, but it, it is indeed the case. On the other hand, you might say, um, I, I have to uh, uh, emphasize the disclosure that I'm not a political scientist. I'm not trained in that field. I understand there's a lively, uh, complex uh, literature, and I'm not even going to attempt to try and summarize the literature. I will interpret neoliberalism from the perspective of, of an economist, and I will highlight uh, particular principles which I believe can be uh, exhibited by a whole range of countries, Georgia included. So uh, let us, uh, it would be useful, I guess, to have a look at the map. Uh, that yellow chunk there is Georgia. So on top is Russia. And then there's Turkey, uh, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. So these are the, uh, the neighbors of, of Georgia. Turkey uh, is a major source of investment as well as tourists, particularly on the Black Sea Resort. Russia, of course, looms large in the case of Georgia, and you may or may not recall that uh, Georgia had a very short, a bitter and extremely destructive war with Russia that lasted eight days, and unfortunately, as, you know, as one would predict, uh, Georgia lost badly and lost a lot of lives, and there are disputed territories there. Uh, so, but when you go to Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, the first thing you notice is that it's full of Russian tourists. So on the one hand, there's this animosity and hostility with respect to Russia. On the other hand, Russians are welcomed um, in, in Georgia. And Russians apparently uh, uh, really uh, like Georgia a lot, in particular Tbilisi, which is a, a lovely uh, uh, sort of city with a very strong European uh, flavor. In, a, in an old-fashioned sort of way. So this is as far as the geography of Georgia is concerned and, and a potted uh, overview of, of the geopolitics that affects uh, that particular part of the world. Now, uh, in terms of a, a brief background, uh, following the dissolution of the former Soviet Union, Georgia became an independent state, so all of those, you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan, all of them, were part of the former Soviet Union, became independent states around the same year. And it followed a familiar pattern. The pattern is once you get out of the, uh, of the Soviet Union fold, what one sees is a huge drop in, in, in output. The GDP fell at a double-digit rate for quite some time. And the country was ravaged by hyperinflation, as we shall see in some numbers. So imagine, double-digit rate decline in GDP growth, hyperinflation, that's the situation in the early 1990s. Uh, the, when uh, Georgia is trying to make the so-called transition to a market economy. Um, the regime was led by Eduard Shevanadze, but according to just about all accounts, it was a regime that was characterized by corruption and poor governance, although there are people who would argue that the stabilization of the Georgian economy owes much to the willingness of uh, the Shevardnadze regime to have an agreement of the IMF that allowed that stabilization to take place. So in that sense, the Shevardnadze regime did make an, a distinctive contribution, but, but uh, if you talk to current generation of policymakers, they don't have a nice word to say, hardly have a nice word to say about Shevardnadze. Uh, largely because of what happened subsequently, largely because of what happened subsequently, which I'll come to. So this was the prelude to, I'm sh I guess all of you have heard of the Rose Revolution that took place in 2003, and it saw a new government uh, under Mikhail Saakashvili, which came to power by about 2004, and Saakashvili sort of was overwhelmingly elected as the president at the time. But the person who's of interest here, and I'm going to personalize the whole story, the person who's of interest here is uh, someone called Kaka Bendukitse. And I apologize if I make mistakes. For those of you who, who, who are very familiar with Georgia, you know, spellings can be tricky. So I'm not sure whether there should be a D or a T in there. So, but, but it seems to vary from uh, one paper to another. 
the, the, the person who really is the intellectual godfather of, of the new liberal movement in uh, Georgia has to be the uh, Kaha Bendukidze, who, by the, by the way, was a Russian oligarch who moved over to, to Georgia. <coughs> and um, and I'll, I'll tell, him, tell you a bit more about him. The new regime was, of course, uh, uh, so he led a, a, um, uh, a new liberal agenda, um, which I shall explain more fully. And the new regime was keen on fostering deeper engagement with the EU and NATO. So as you can see, there's a decisive shift you know, in trying to move towards EU and NATO. And that has a bearing on the way policies have evolved in the case, both social and economic policies have evolved in the case of Georgia. Um, I have to say that um, if this deeper engagement with the EU and NATO did not take place, it would not have been possible for the ILO to have a deeper engagement with Georgia. The reason why the ILO is in Georgia has to do a lot with the fact that the EU has put pressure on Georgia to say, you must pay more attention to wages and working conditions. And that allowed the entry for the island, uh, and which, of course, uh, someone as a former official, I got dragged into it, if you like. Okay, so this is, this is Mikhail Sarkashvili in a pensive mood, as you can see. And there's a nice piece on him called The Rise and Fall of Mikhail Sarkashvili. Just to give you an idea what kind of a character he is, he became president, of course, uh, became famous for being the, the public face of the Rose Revolution, the leader of the Rose Revolution. Stepped down as president, I think, in 2013, and then decided to go to Ukraine. Whether he decided to go to Ukraine or was forced to go to Ukraine, I don't know. But goes to Ukraine and becomes the governor of one of the regions of Ukraine. I don't know how that happened. So for a while, he was the governor of one of the regions of Ukraine. And he was very friendly with the current uh, uh, Ukrainian president, Pereshenko, I think is his name. Uh, but then they fell out. And at the moment, I don't know where <laughs> Saakashvili is. But he's one of those characters who had a, a, a real prominence for a while. He was the darling of the West and seen as someone who was bringing about major societal transformation in that part of the world. So, and that waving at us is the famous Kaha Bendukitze. Uh, as the New Yorker said in a piece that it wrote, the man who remade Georgia. So as you can see, his impact is, is supposed to be quite remarkable. Unfortunately, he passed away as a result of a heart attack in 19, uh, at the age of 58, but he's left behind a legacy. I believe he was the driving force, if not the founder of two universities in Georgia, both of them bastions of free market ideas. And he therefore is credited uh, even today, of creating a generation of free market thinkers through those two institutions. So Kaka Bendukidze not only had a role to play when he was alive in terms of changing policies, but decided to leave behind an intellectual legacy. So that's uh, Kaka Bendukidze for you. Now let me just give you a sense of what they thought about when they were discussing policy reforms in Georgia. And they actually wrote a piece in 2014. And this is the quote I have from the 2014 piece. They called Georgia a case of radical catch-up reforms. And look at the quote. This is a direct quote from a chapter they wrote in a book. The idea was to design a straight jacket for the irreversibility of reforms carried out by the government and to create the basis for the inviolability of the principles of economic freedom. What attracted me to this quote was this whole notion of a straitjacket, that somehow you have to contain the government because the government cannot be trusted. It is always, if left to itself, government is always mischievous, malicious, and up to all kinds of misdeeds. So we have to impose a straitjacket on the government. And only that's just about the only way to enshrine the principles of economic freedom. So that is this particular philosophy of the government that needs to be contained and restrained from its impulses, if you like. So this is a, a piece uh, which I, I've given the full citation. Uh, the title is called Georgia, the Most Radical Catch-Up Reforms in a book that uh, Asland and Yankov. Yankov, I think, I think is still, I don't know whether it's still the World Bank, but he's the one 
who became famous for implementing what's known as the Doing Business Reports of the World Bank. I don't know whether you know much about this, but Doing Business Reports are probably among the most downloaded reports of the World Bank ever in its history. And all that doing business does is, is actually celebrate the easing of, 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 of uh, doing business in different parts of the world. And the name of that book is, of course, called The Great Rebirth, Lessons from the Victory of Capitalism Over Communism. And so Yankov is a, is, is a really strong free market believer, and he invited uh, two practitioners to show how that work can be done. Okay. So... Let's uh, give uh, a bit of a background here. Now, this is where I'm, um, I, I think it would be useful just to double uh, to point out that Shakashvili was president until 2013. But uh, by the time I, I, of course, started this work, uh, a new party was in power. It's called Georgian Dream. And uh, they like to call themselves social democratic. It's a coalition of all kinds of people. But the overall label... The, the overall sort of uh, way in which they're united is called social de democratic ideas. And they came to power in 2012, re-elected in 2016. And in 2014, uh, th there was a Georgia-EU association agreement that was signed in 2014, which came into force in 2016. So externally, too, some important changes took place. And for what it is worth, I understand from my interviews that this was the external imperative for changes in social policy that diluted some elements of the new liberal agenda, which I'm going to define more fully subsequently. And, and uh, it would be fair to say that key elements of the new liberal agenda, that is my conclusion, remain intact despite the attempt to broaden the domain of social policy. Now, in order to understand this particular... So that's my key conclusion, that there is continuity, uh, despite the fact that the social democratic government is in power. And this continuity has happened re uh, despite the fact that we have had a progressive broadening of the social policy agenda. So what we need to do in order to establish that point is to go back to what I call the guiding principles of economic. I've deliberately said economic. I've already uh, said that I'm by no means a political scientist. And I also hesitate to call myself a political economist, but, but from the perspective of an economist, I will try and, and uh, offer my interpretation of what I mean by neoliberalism and why I think it applies to the case of Georgia uh, in order to uh, assess the proposition that I've just said, which is that Georgia remains a neoliberal country in many important ways despite some uh, significant changes in social policy. Now, this is where I'm going to chance my arm and, and provide some guiding principles. Um, as I said, there is a, a, a complex, vibrant literature, um, and I'm not even going to attempt to try and sort of summarize that or link that particular literature to what I'm going to say. Um, I understand that there are people, for example, who just came across a work by uh, uh, Professor Birch from York University, Canada, where he, say, where he asks, what exactly is neoliberalism? He's very unhappy with the term. He says it's reached its expiry date and one shouldn't even be using it. It has lost its analytical edge. So what I've tried to do is I have tried to highlight those principles based on what I would regard as cross-country experiences. If you observe what countries do, one is struck by how common certain elements are, and I call those neoliberal principles. And in doing so, I would also argue that neoliberalism should not be associated either with right or left, simply because it cuts across both centre-left and centre-right governments. That's what I, it seems to me is the case. Uh, um, and whether, uh, you know, Hawke-Keating government were neoliberal governments is something that those of you experts can tell me more. But these are the guiding principles that I have in mind. The first is, of course, this whole emphasis on the private sector. The private sector uh, leads growth, it is the source of growth and employment creation as well as poverty reduction. And macroeconomic stability is essential for rapid growth. So that's my second principle that I can talk about. And such stability is best provided by the government through what we call a credible commitment to nominal anchors. 
and I will explain what we mean by those nominal anchors. But what are these nominal anchors? Well, these are numerical targets pertaining to inflation, debts, deficits, and the external balance. I'm just reading something on Uzbekistan, as I said, I'm about to travel early tomorrow, and the language is strikingly similar. Talk about numerical targets, talk about macro stability, the talk about the need for private sector-led growth. And the reason why it's significant in the case of Uzbekistan is a country that was often known to be extremely dirigist in terms of its uh, orientation, decided in November 2017 to open up and follow those ideas. Uh, now, why do we need this credible commitment? Uh, we need these commitments because it stabilizes what we call private sector expectations about the future evolution of key macro variables. And when you have, have such stability, forward-looking private sector, the private sector regard is, is supposed to be populated by forward-looking agents, sometimes we call them Ricardian agents, to undertake effective decisions with respect to consumption, savings and investment, and these private sector-led decisions in turn stimulate growth. That's the idea then. And I'm sure all, you know, whenever we open up the newspapers, we hear about market confidence. You know, uh, we need to give market confidence so that investors will come in and invest more. Well, this is this notion of market confidence. And how do you instill market confidence? Well, the government does so by making a commitment to certain numerical targets. Which is why in this election, for example, Scott Morrison is so keen to demonstrate his fiscal credential by saying we're going to achieve a surplus. So you can see there is almost a, a, a fixation with, with ensuring that you know, fiscal policy follows a particular track. I call this, and indeed not, it's not my language, by the way, this is the language of the European Union. As you know, the European Union, through the Maastricht Treaty, is in my view the champion of, of, of this kind of thinking. And the stability-oriented macro framework needs to be supported by the principle of what has been known in the literature as technocratic autonomy. And by technocratic autonomy, it simply means that you give the technocrats sufficient space, uh, insulate them from populist pressures, insulate them from civic movements, so that they can do their job. And, and two of the best ways that this has happened has happened in Australia in 1993, in New Zealand in 1990, and so on and so forth, and in a whole raft of EU countries around the same period, is this idea of an independent central bank. Oh, we must insulate monetary policy from populist pressures. Make sure that, you know, there are no uh, demands for, uh, saying, credit allocation in X and credit allocation in Y, preferential treatment in A and preferential treatment in B. Allow the central bank to run policy in terms of its collective wisdom, and that collective wisdom resides in these uh, technocrats and experts. And on top of that, there are independent fiscal councils as well. There are about more than 30 fiscal councils in, um, in the world today, and more than 40 independent central banks. Not a lot, but most of them in, in of course, the developed part of the world. And what should independent central banks do? They should adopt an inflation targeting regime, so keep inflation as low as possible, in the case of advanced countries, it is less than 3%. And in the case of developing countries, it is less than 5%. And with flexible exchange regimes, now, you know, uh, this is macro 101, if you like, that if you want to have independent central banks uh, running monetary policy, then they need to have the benefit of flexible exchange rate regimes. And uh, so this is what you typically do, that as countries move towards an inflation targeting regime, they also move towards a flexible exchange rate regime in, in many, many cases. And what about fiscal uh, rules? Well, fiscal rules, of which there are more than 100 by now, uh, should guide, uh, I mean, more than 100 cases of fiscal rules across the world. The fiscal rules should guide fiscal policy without primary, whose, whose primary objective is to contain debts and deficits. And this is where the the preoccupation with surpluses come in. You know, what is it, you know, Australia is a country well known for its extremely low debt to GDP ratio. And seems and is said with a matter of great pride, as if you're trying to and we have a triple A rating because this is what uh, fiscal policy is supposed to do. And so that kind of thinking is deeply ingrained across many countries. And there should of course be deep economic so independent fiscal councils if you have them 
Or even if, you, even if you don't have them, you should have explicit fiscal rules. And there should be deep economic integration with the global economy, both in terms of an open capital account as well as in terms of minimal trade barriers with respect to goods and services. So these are, um, uh, you know, uh, are some of the critical uh, sort of uh, principles, but it, I, I go further, uh, and the argument is that, look, uh, stability-oriented macro policies are essential, but they need to be complemented by structural policies. And what are these structural policies, uh, and why do you need them? Because they augment the trickle-down benefits of rapid growth. So you set a stable framework, it boosts uh, private sector confidence. On top of that, you have a series of structural policies that will reinforce the benefits of trickle-down economics. And what are they? They're business-friendly regulations and flexible labor markets to improve the investment climate. Yesterday, I was listening in the ABC to views about raising the minimum wage here in Australia, and, 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 and guess what the business community said? Well, minimum wages will destroy jobs. It will mean a less business-friendly regulation environment and so on and so forth. So you can almost predict what uh, some people are going to say. Okay. And you should enhance skills and employability to improve employment outcomes. One of the things that everybody agrees on is this whole notion of skills. Uh, why is there high unemployment? Because people lack skills. Why do people lack skills? Because the education training system do not generate enough uh, you know, uh, job-ready skills. So I call this Say's Law. You know, in the notion of Say's law, sales law in economics, we have this infamous idea that supply creates its own demand. So as long as it can boost the supply of skills, jobs will follow. I still remember a conversation I had with uh, one of the uh, ministry officials from India who said to me and, and assured me, the jobs are there in India. All in need are the skills in order to respond to those uh, jobs that are already there. So that's what I call a says law as applied to the notion of skills. Okay, and, and what do you do with poverty? Well, in this case, what you have is targeted social assistance. And I call this social policy built on the notion of a presumption of guilt. In other words, People who are prospective and actual beneficiaries are guilty and they need to be therefore very tightly monitored through targeted policies. And the whole purpose of targeted policies is to reduce so-called inclusion errors, that is, you must not include non-deserving poor, and exclusion errors, you must not exclude the deserving poor, that is, those who really need to be helped. But the emphasis is on the real dregs of society, the really awfully poor who can't really look after themselves, direct social benefits to them, but in a punitive way. That's by targeting, which is what we observe in many parts of the world. So this, in my view, is what I call a new liberal, new liberal agenda. So all these elements that I've talked about are actually present in the case of Georgia. So obvious, obviously, um, I, I've set up a case in such a way I've defined all the principles in my own way, and then I'm, I'm now arguing that the principles apply to Georgia. A, a legitimate question that you could ask is, well, that you may or may not agree with the principles of neoliberalism that I have uh, proposed there. But I've tried to lay them out because one thing that frustrated me about reading the literature on you, uh, you know, when I was trying to skin through the literature on neoliberalism is that there's no clear, substantive, operational definition in some cases. But what is it? But these are some of the principles, I think, that I've observed uh, in, in a variety of countries, uh, both rich and poor. Okay, I um, don't know whether you can read that, but I'm, I'm so, I, I myself can't read it from here, to be very honest with you, but I'll, I'll, I have the printout. And this is around 2006, around 2006. So there were major labor market reforms. By the way, Chair, just tell me when I'm running out of time. Yeah. Whatever the protocol is, quantitative. Okay. So there were major labor market reforms in 2006 that led to the dismantling of the labor market inspection system. That was dismantled. There's a complete neglect of minimum wages. I think even today, Georgia has the lowest ratio of minimum to average wages in the world. And there was enhanced targeting of social protection, and the whole purpose was to show that the government was absolutely keen to provide value for money for 
value for tax dollars uh, by ensuring a very low incidence of both inclusion and exclusion errors. And there's a so-called Economic Liberty Act with numerical fiscal targets. Government expenditure was capped at 30%, budget deficit at 3%, public debt at 60%, a flat income tax rate of 20%, and no new taxes. Sounds like George Bush today. No new taxes. No new taxes. Read my lips. Read my lips. And an independent central bank with an inflation target of around 3%. What you notice that those numbers, I mean, I, I couldn't say that in my interviews, those numbers were copied and replicated from the Maastricht Treaty criteria. Okay? The Maastricht Treaty has exactly those numbers. Exactly those numbers. And the only variation that was made was normally the, um, the European Central Bank has an inflation target of 2%, and Georgia said, okay, we'll allow an extra percentage and make it 3%. That's the only variation, but everything else is straight out of Maastricht Treaty. Of course, the Maastricht Treaty does not have, I think, a government expenditure cap to 30%. So this was something. And certainly does not have the fact that there can be no new taxes. So the Economic Liberty Act went a step beyond what many countries do in terms of the fiscal probity, if you like. Okay. What about uh, the business environment? There were major changes to the business environment. Georgia became one of the top ten countries in the world for doing business, as measured by the World Bank. In fact, as far as I know, the only middle-income country to be in the top ten. Its business environment, apparently, as ranked by the, uh, by the World Bank, is better than Australia, better than many other OECD countries. Uh, so, uh, and and uh, this graph, which I'm showing, shows you that. So it starts with New Zealand, the best in terms of doing business. And on the very top blue line is number 10, is Sweden, which it doesn't show in the graph. And then after that is Georgia. So in 2018, Georgia's rank was number nine, the ninth best country in the world for doing business, and the only middle-income country to have that distinction. And 2019, which I haven't updated yet, I just found out that Georgia's rank is number six, better than most uh, European countries. So that is where Georgia is, and therefore it stands out. Therefore it stands out in terms of the reforms that has been done in the case of the business environment. So. What have been the outcomes? What can we say about Georgia? It's all very well to say that it was a star reformer. But is it, as the World Bank said, with some degree of exasperation, a star performer? Has the star reformer become a star performer? And let's see. Well, in terms of growth, solid growth, of course, there was a recession in 2009, but many countries had recession in 2009. As you can see, the 90s were a terrible period. So this is from 1991 to 2023 projection. And the projection is that Georgia will grow around 5%, which is a very respectable growth rate for a country of that size and given its uh, you know, population base. So it's, sorry, it's just done well in terms of growth. And one could argue that over the previous period, that is up to about 2012, from 26 to 2012, growth was pretty good in the Georgian economy. It has dipped below that, but the long-run expectation is that it will grow around 5 5%. 5 so these are more recent numbers um, from 2010 to the second quarter of 2018. Yeah, as you can see, the hyperinflation going past 40% in the mid-1990s, but inflation now stabilizing around 3%. That's the projection up to the mid-2020s. So in terms of growth, it has done well. In terms of inflation, it has done well. When it comes to the fiscal deficit as a proportion of GDP, it is typically, apart from a few years, it is typically contained within less than uh, less than four uh, percent, and in some cases, you actually it actually managed uh, surpluses as well. So once again, uh, its fiscal deficit has been contained. It's had a pretty reasonable record. What about public debt to GDP ratio? Well, 
it's within the threshold. You can see that, right? The threshold is 60% debt-to-GDP ratio. It has maintained that threshold, gone below that, and it is projected to maintain that threshold up to 2023. So whenever you come across the application of neoliberal ideas and principles as I have defined them, one often finds that in terms of some macro numbers, things look quite well. I mean, growth is reasonably stable and solid, and the fiscal position is pretty good. Inflation is well contained. These things happen in country after country. So that, that is the, the, the strength of this particular framework, that there is an emphasis on fixing the macro numbers, and one is able to fix those numbers. The two other things I would like to say, which I haven't shown here, one is that there was a big jump in tax-to-GDP ratio from about 12% of GDP to 25%. And there was a sharp drop in corruption. In terms of corruption perception rankings, Georgia does pretty well now. Previously, it was in many cases, you know, late 1990s, it was a basket case. Terribly poor record of corruption. So on those grounds, I think the godfathers of neoliberalism in Georgia can say, look, I told you, we've managed, we've managed to, to do good things. The problem starts, as it does in many countries, when you shift from the macro numbers to labor market and social indicators, when then things don't look all that great. And this is what I wanted to suggest to you. So if you look at labor market and social indicators, they tell a different story. A poor unemployment record, usually double-digit, for a pretty long time. And indeed, in the mid-2000s, there was an increase in the unemployment rate. So, of course, the, the vertical axis is the unemployment rate and the years on the horizontal axis. And that yellow line, as you can say, hovers around the, within the 10 to 15% band. Uh, the youth unemployment rate is over 30%. Uh, nearly 30% of young people are neither in employment nor in education or training or, or what is known as the NEAT indicator, which is the OECD indicator for uh, emphasizing different dimensions of underutilization of young people. The thing that really is of concern, at least to those of us who study uh, this part of the world as external observers, but it's a very interesting thing, is that there has been a decline in the population. Uh, you know, in 1991, the Georgian population was higher than it is today, and by 2023, it would be even lower than it is today. And when you raise these issues about a declining population to policymakers in Georgia, they say, well, a lower population is not a bad idea. There will be less pollution, there will be less congestion, but, and you know, they, our, 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 you know, our citizens can have access to visa-free regime in Europe. They can travel there, go away if they don't like it. And, and when they say, well, look, all you'll have is a much greater incidence of older people, less productive workforce, what do you think about that? And their answer is, well, uh, we can import a few workers from outside and, and have new technology and robots and so on and so forth to help us uh, offset that. So they don't seem terribly worried, at least on the record, when it comes to demographic trends. But it is, it is, it is an issue, as it is in, in different countries in that part of the world. So this, this new nibble policy package really has not been geared towards trying to understand what's happening, because it's a combination of low fertility and out-migration. Despite the fact that Tbilisi and, uh, and various parts of Georgia are you know, very, very pretty country, young people don't like living there, uh, largely because of limited job opportunities. Okay, and you can see that for 8 out of 11 years, net migration was actually negative in Georgia. There's even more serious uh, point that I want to make, is that when it comes to uh, structural transformation, it appears that it's an economy still dominated by low productivity self-employment. It's around 50% for the last 8 to 10 years or more. Okay, five minutes. I'll wrap up. Thank you very much. If you take a basic indicator like life expectancy, 
life expectancy has actually stalled or even fallen slightly relative to previous years in Georgia. So in terms of basic indicators, it, it, it's a, you know, quite startling. Poverty has fallen, but in more recent years, it has basically stabilized around 21-22%. And according to a more recent UNICEF study, poverty has actually gone up in Georgia. Real wages, some evidence of a moderate increase. Inequality, stable. Uh, it's not one of those countries where inequality is short up, at least measured inequality. Although people will say, if you look at the oligarchs, uh, wealth inequality is much higher in Georgia than what is captured by the statistics. And uh, this is what I want to spend a bit of time, very briefly. This is known as the EPL, or the Employment Protection Legislation, as devised by the OECD. Now, if you have employment protection legislation equal to zero, it means you're a highly liberal economy. And of course, if you're an employment protection legislation equal to six, then it is the most illiberal uh, uh, labor market that you can think of. These are uh, the OECD kind of benchmarks. Look at Georgia, 0.51. The lowest as far as I know in the world in terms of the dismantling of labor inspection regime and other regulations. The average, the global average is 2.1, 2.2. And Georgia, 0.51. They're clearly an outlier when it comes to that. To that. So... The argument uh, we wanted to make in the ILO report was that this can be related to the fact that there's a big jump in industrial fatalities and accidents. Between 2005 and 2007, when the changes take place, you see a sharp increase in industrial accidents and fatalities. And, and if you look at minimum wages, look at where developing countries are in general, 47% of average wage is the minimum wage in 14 developing countries. For Georgia, it's basically zero. There's no minimum wage that's, that's been legislated since the mid-1990s, and inflation has eroded all the minimum wage thresholds that have been set up. When it comes to uh, trained workforce, you know, is this a problem? Well, it depends which survey you look at. Some surveys say inadequately trained workforce, the first bar on the left, the first bar, which says 15.5%, is the lowest. And, but others say that you know, political instability, access to finance are much, offer much more concern. So once again, there's no clear agreement from survey data on whether skills represent a major constraint in the case of Georgia. So what has changed? What has changed is, of course, social policy. In 2017, just look at the numbers. Social protection accounted for 25% of central government expenditure. Consumed 6.7% of GDP. Nearly 68% of households receive some form of social transfer. And there's a universal old age pension, universal health care. So this is my interpretation. What Georgia has done is says, I'm going to carry on with all the neoliberal sort of policies, in particular by freeing up the business sector, by making sure labor markets are extremely flexible. But I'm going to appease the rest of the population by ensuring that there is a generous social policy. So that's the kind of juggling act that in my interpretation has happened in the case of Georgia. However, have things really changed? That's my concluding slide. Chair, I'm almost there. Just the last slide of this one. So on the left, I have placed all the changes that took place between 2006 and 2013. The key period of change, the Economic Liberty Act is still maintained. Independent central bank, the inflation targeting, still maintained. Labor market reforms, there's some cosmetic changes, but not serious changes. Primacy of doing well in business, maintained and celebrated every year. Skills and employability, there was no clear direction in the past. There's a major reform commitments. And this is where the, the, the uh, contradiction is. No major commitments to uh, sort of uh, skills and employability initiatives, but they cost resources, they require more staff, and that's where the fiscal policy limits are becoming a problem. As far as targeted social protection is concerned, this is where the major change has happened. Uh, social policy become more comprehensive, which combines both targeted and universal elements. And my interpretation is it is through this route that the Georgian government, the social democratic government today, is trying to, if you like, 
soften the rough edges that have been spawned by new liberal economic strategy. On that note, Chair, I'd like to conclude. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think we've all had a wonderful lesson in economics today. Uh, questions? Yes, Leon. So my question is, in the sense that, I mean, if you talk about the 2006 yeah. and, you know, sort of this capture this neoliberalism. Yeah, as I, I keep saying, I've yeah, defined it in a particular way. Yeah, yeah you may disagree with the definition. Policy makers in Georgia has been following how their teachers at the IMF have been uh, changing themselves, right? I mean, the question is like, for example, the, 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 the latest address by Oliver Blanchard in American Economic Association. And Oliver Blanchard, as you know, is the chief economist at yes. ex-professor at IMT. Yes. And he said, we shouldn't be so hung up about the public deficits. Yes. You know, people like Larry Summers. Yes. You know, okay? Yes. And also did this thing about uh, free capital flows and so on. Yes. And IMF and you know other people have, have mentioned the, the, the fact that Capital controls need not be a bad thing. And of course, after the disaster of the Asian financial crisis, yes. we don't have to issue a mere cup of, you know, yes. I mean, Malaysia and so in China yes. did, the, did the right thing. Okay. So I'm just wondering whether the policymakers in Georgia uh, are following. overtaken by the teachers or they're still learning or remembering the stuff they were taught before but not keeping up to date with the latest okay. literature. It's a very good question. Very good question. You want me to respond or you want to take a few questions? Go ahead. Respond? Respond. Yes. Okay. Um, you know, IMF is a very clever, sophisticated institution, uh, and it speaks with many voices. Its global message is, is, is pretty subtle, but at the country level, it is as primitive as ever. Uh, when it comes to, so one of the best ways to find out what the IMF actually does is to read the country reports. It has not for once. Uh, raised any serious objections to any of these policies that uh, that Georgia has done. So if Georgia follows a particular policy and the government says this is what we want, it will commend the government. If the, if the government changes its policies and say, well, the authorities want to change that, um, and, and so on and so forth. So at the, at the country level, not much has changed, to be very honest with you. Country level operations of the fund. The global voice has. The global messaging certainly has. It's much more. Because, in the, you know, where was Olivier Blanchard? Olivier Blanchard was leading the research department of the IMF. He wasn't in the operations arm of the IMF. And I had the uh, you know, privilege of, of sort of visiting the research department. So a few people there, and they're like us. The scholars writing away, you know, uh, crunching numbers and, and doing their papers, and not particularly fussed about uh, the operational aspects of the fund. So that was where Olivier Blanchard was. Uh, that was the first thing I wanted to say. And, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, as you know very well, uh, two economists from the IMF for the f was one of the first times when they wrote a, uh, an article on neoliberalism without condemning it as a term of abuse. They tried to take that term seriously by focusing on cap open capital account and, and, and trade integration and so on and so forth. So I couldn't agree more. As far as country-level uh, facts on the ground are concerned, there hasn't been a great deal of change. Can you just follow up there? I was just looking, you may be looking at the OECD, the EU, for example. Yeah. Most of those, a lot of those countries, like France, they yeah. don't, they're no. able to keep the 3% no. uh, thing no. about uh, that. Rich countries can afford to have a state. So, in a sense, yeah. they've broken the rules yeah. so many times. Yeah, because they make the rules and therefore they break the yeah. rules. I that's mean, okay, <laughs> that, that's all right. Even when yeah. the when they talk about the debt trap, you know, Chris had a big debt trap. Yeah, yeah. And we they had to borrow from yeah. the IMF. Mean, what did yeah. they do? They used the money to bail up the French and German banks. Correct. So uh, I'm just wondering, this thing about yeah. uh, not, not walking the talk, so to speak. And uh, to what extent, I'm just wondering in terms of the whether there's in the sense a bit of, I don't know what's the word for it, some people use the word like regulatory capture. Yeah. That, that by the, you know, uh, because certain interests that yep. the policy makers mm. have embraced yep. and therefore they, they keep spilling up the, the same sort of prescriptions right. even though deep in their hearts they yep. might think that's, yep. you know, there's something uneasy about this. Sure. Uh, all I can say is that 
Greece is not France, France is not Greece. You know, France can do get away with a lot, Greece can't. Yeah. Yes, Colin. About the population question. Yes. You said that um, there may be some advantages in a falling population. Like well, that is, a, the, that is the official... More AI and, yeah. and uh, less population. Yeah. What do you think about that personally? I mean, a country that doesn't have a very big population anyway, does it? Well, I mean, it's one thing to say you can have a, a stable population. Quite another to say it's actually declining. If you have a declining population, the size of the workforce will decrease, uh, you know, the proportion of elderly people in that population will go up and over time it will be, uh, it'll actually impose a lot of pressures on social social transfers. Do you think that transfers. might change though? It doesn't have to decline forever? Uh, that could change, yes. Uh, but, but you know, these things like uh, low fertility is one of those things that once, once it sets in it's very difficult to reverse whatever the Pope says, do you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> and and, and, uh, and out-migration also is very difficult. You can't stop people from... You can stop people from leaving, but you'll have a lot of unhappy people. So as far as the implicit official position is, the, the Georgian government negotiated a visa-free regime with, with the European Union, and it turns back and says to his young people, go and travel as much as you can. Go and work here, there, and everywhere. It's one of the ways of managing discontent. So they, they uh, migrate to all kinds of places? Yes, yes, yes. Because it's a visa-free regime now, and therefore they can travel to lots of... And you talk to them, they, they're all waiting to go somewhere. You know, they're a bartender, they're bartender in Tbilisi, they'd rather be a bartender in Paris. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Caitlin. sorry. Caitlin. Uh, oh, sorry, no, yes, no, yes. Okay. Caitlin. Yeah. Um, just following on a little bit from Colin's yeah. question, um, on those indicators around labour force, where do you see women's participation and, and women's... Yeah, I, I didn't show that. I'm so sorry. Yeah. The, the gender dimensions. Well, labour force participation was very low. Right. Very low. Yeah. Do you see that, that trajectory changing? Or are there any um, policies in place that might... No, unless there are uh, major policy initiatives to try and change it. No. Mm -hmm. Like providing childcare facilities, say, for example. Mm -hmm. Unless those things happen. Even with a low fertility. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, make it, a, if you want to make it a gender friendly workplace, unless you're serious about it, I think the female labor participation rate is around 40%, uh, 50% or so, even less. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I, I missed that one. I'll, I'll write it. One should, actually, I, it's there in my full report, but not in this. Yes, please. Uh, there was a. Yeah, but yeah, I, I want to make a quick comment with the out-migration, because yeah. if, if it's something like the Philippines where they get a lot of remittances coming in anyway. Yeah, and, good. Uh, and good uh, I think the, the other point is we, we, we can't ignore the Russian bank. And so I, I wonder how philosophically where the Georgia, Georgia's population is to neoliberal reform, because if I recall, one of the reasons Shashkavili was was uh, well, lost the election essentially was you know so just after the global financial crisis you know people were, were unhappy with with projecting that you know have they gone down this path in order to to oppose the, in order to uh, run away from the Russian influence because they feel that if we take a neoliberal response we'll be friendly to the West and the West will be more likely to help us. I think a very insightful uh, question and certainly I. I agree that this, this whole idea of an engagement with the EU, whole idea of engagement in NATO, and whole idea of having what are called market-friendly policies uh, have a geopolitical sort of rationale to them. And one of them is a conscious disengagement from the Russian past. That, that, that is very true, I think it's fair to say. But I just want to come back to this point, uh, which is this whole notion of social policy. The current social democratic governments primary purpose is to say we're different from the Shakashvili regime because we look after our people. I mean, 68% of the population depend on some kind of transfers from the state. It's a staggering number. Take away those transfers and you'll see, you know, large-scale misery in that country. That's the way they've tried to do it. While retaining everything else, the Economic Liberty Act is still there, all the business-friendly reforms and everything else is there. You know, very flexible labor market, everything is there. And you talk to people at random, young people at random, the first thing they'll tell you is wages and working conditions are extremely poor. That's the first thing they say. And that therefore I'm waiting to leave and go somewhere else. <laughs> that, that, that's the statement that they make. Sorry. Uh, yeah, 
Um, thanks for your presentation. Um, can you just comment on how large is the informal economy? Yeah, very good question. There's no, once again, I apologize for not showing numbers of the informal economy. It varies. You know, one estimate suggests 64%. Um, but I've seen other estimates, which is 30%. So anyway, between 32. So it depends upon how you estimate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you think that the informal the economy, informal, yeah. uh, informal economy actually observes the unemployment? Yes. Like That's the a standard safety valve, okay. yes. You, you can't get jobs in the formal sector. You end up in the informal economy because you have to you know, manage your living. But although in Georgia the pressures are less so because the social networks are very strong, that's one thing. And a lot of people, a lot of young people, actually share the pensions that are received by, by elderly Georgians. Elderly Georgians use their pensions to finance young people as well. Uh, so, so there is a, an intra-household transfer as well that happens. And, uh, and there's an, you know, so that's some, one of the reasons why I think there, there's less, less pressure for them to work straight away on any job, which is why the youth unemployment rate is close to 30. A lot of it is, uh, uh, you know, people voluntarily not wanting to take any job that they that they offered. Yeah. Can I have another question? Uh, sure. Um, on low productivity, I'm yeah. wondering if it's low in terms of the low growth over the years, or low in terms of the region, or in terms of low productivity is largely because of the economic structure is still heavily dependent on the agricultural sector. Agriculture is a low productivity sector. Oh, okay. And on top of that, if you add the informal economy, then, then you have a low productivity economy. The economic structure hasn't changed great, you know, a lot. So it's still largely an agricultural Yes, yes, it's yes. still quite significant in the agricultural sector. Yeah. Lucy. Oh, yes, thank Lucy. You. I appreciated the lesson in economics. <laughs> I'll just say that. As well as, <laughs> I wanted to know if your research, um, if you can comment on what the sentiment is in the region towards Georgia's model. Do other neighboring post-Soviet countries see this as a model they would like to aspire to? What is yeah. um, a tough question, because that uh, assumes that I have a lot of knowledge about the region itself, on which I don't. Um, but if you take Uzbekistan, I mean, here's an example. Uzbekistan has always been known as a, an economy in which the state played a very major role. It, it retained its Soviet Union roots in many different ways relative to the others for a long, long time. Only in November 2017 did they open up along the lines that Georgia did. Only in November 2017. So yes, I think that the Georgian model is seen as something that one ought to be doing. But on the other hand, um, uh, its image has been tarnished a bit uh, as a result of, you know, if you dig a little deeper, because if you go to the country, it's, it's lovely. I mean, you know, you think, oh, you know, so what a great place to be in. But there's a lot of hidden poverty, a lot of misery that you don't actually see unless you start talking to people, dig into the data and so on and so forth. So superficially from the outside, Georgia looks like a, a reasonably successful model. So. Steve? Yes, Steve? Uh, question over there. Which one? Oh, oh I'm sorry. Sorry. Hello. Hi. Hello. If I understand it correctly, uh, the current education and skills policy in Georgia is consciously modeled on the idea of a knowledge and innovation-driven economy and saying what we have to do is, you know, invest a lot more and in a lot smarter way in, in human capital. So in that sense, there is a, at least an implicit ratification of that kind of approach, whether it's Estonia or Singapore. Yes, they, yeah, there's a huge, uh, there's a, a big reform agenda. But the problem with that reform agenda is that, you know, all reforms, no reforms comes free of cost. They all cost resources. 
and and that's where I think the problem is, yeah. Because they have limits on on, on fiscal policy and resource mobilization strategies. Yes. Yeah, it's a combination of low fertility and out migration. Yes. Very good question, and I think this is the point that Pravinda raised, that you know, out-migration has a, the benefit is that you get a lot of remittances. Remittances are very high proportion of GDP. I don't have the exact number here with me at the moment, but it would be close to 8-9% of GDP. And so obviously it finances a lot of household consumption, and poverty in the absence of remittances would be significantly higher. So yes, that's, that's a major benefit. As it is in many countries, whether it's Sri Lanka or India or Bangladesh, what have you. Yeah. Uzbekistan is another one. There's another one. Absolutely. All working in, in, the, in, in Russia. <laughs> All working in Russia. The Russian labor market receives a lot of these people, and in return, what we get are remittances flowing into those countries. Let me ask a question. I, first of all, I see there's a very close connection between high youth unemployment out-migration and low fertility, because it's the young people of mm. that age who have children. Yes. So this is a, you know, this is this is connected. If Georgia has such a good reputation, being good for business, why hasn't it not attracted more foreign investment yep. and more jobs? I mean, my, my experience with, with this sort of thing is with the tiger economies in, the, in, yep. the East, in East yep. Asia. And of course, they were creating jobs like crazy and this brought up uh, real wages. Yeah. They had very steep increases in real wages in yeah. the 70s and 80s in, mm -hmm. in Taiwan, South mm -hmm. Korea, and places like mm -hmm. that. Why has this not worked in Georgia? Well, to be honest with you, uh, FDI has happened on a large scale for direct investment in Georgia. It has uh, flowed in a lot. Once again, a significant percentage of GDP. But they're mainly in capital-intensive projects large-scale capital-intensive projects, uh, which is why they are not generating a lot of jobs. It's not, it's not into labor-intensive industries. Okay. Yeah, that, so that's, that's the, the composition. Is the, is the composition, kind yeah, of the composition of, GDP, yeah. uh, of FDI is in capital-intensive active right. sectors right. primarily. Yeah. It, it wishes to be a major, you know, one of its key targets is, is, is enhanced tourism. And hopefully you'll have more FDI in hotels and chains and so on and so forth. So that's another effect. Yeah. What you said raised one question, because I thought that research departments are to inform practice. Sorry, you're talking about IMF? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You have a research department. Yeah. You're supposed to inform yeah. practice. So I am quite asking how come there's a disconnect between the policy department yeah. and the guys who actually, you know. Yeah, very good question. Country. Very good question. Uh, <coughs> as I said, there are two uh, IMFs. Well, there are many IMFs. One's a global one, and the other's the country level one. The country level one's are more powerful, the operational ones are more powerful. Why is it more powerful? The same way that you have this dis uh, di divide between administrators and researchers. Oh, these professors are useless. You were talking. <laughs> they can write uh, papers that, uh, that sound wonderful, but uh, as far as our administrative things are concerned, we'll, we'll do what we do. I think it's this, it's this traditional tension. No, no, it does play a role, but on the other hand, you know, even this term chief economist, you know that. There's no such title as a chief. There's no formal title called a chief economist in, in, in the IMF. He's, he's called the economic counselor. He's called the economic counselor, yeah? And he runs a small department, not very large, and they are primarily responsible for the global reports and for producing all these IMF working papers. And they're all fascinating and wonderful and, and worth reading and, and all the data management globally. But uh, I think in terms of the major impact in policy, to some extent, yes, in some countries, yes, but, but country-level operations are, are actually more powerful element of the fund. That is my reading of, of the fund. So it's I could like be wrong. The governance of yeah, the internal governance of the fund. Governance yes, of the yes. Yes, in the same way, think of this university, its governance structure. Who are the more powerful and influential ones? 
the academics who toil away or the administrators? <laughs> ask this question. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, just ask yourself. I think it's the same kind of tension that exists in that large organization as well. Yeah, yeah. 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 I agree with you, and I think I think the elephant in the room is this: its relationship with Russia. I think, really, that's where the problem starts, as you rightly put it yourself. Yeah, you can't afford to to ignore your huge neighbor, and bypass it, and, and hope to be very prosperous. That's where the problem is, which is why implicitly. There's a, there's a huge attempt to try and lure uh, Russian tourists, despite all the hostility and lack of diplomatic relations. I mean, the hotel I was staying in my last visit, 80-90% were Russian tourists. Yeah. Could, could I ask, um, are there any ethnic minorities in Georgia? And do yeah. they have an impact on the economy? Yeah. A very good question. I haven't looked into it, but I'm sure there are ethnic minorities in, in Georgia, but I don't know what their position is, what kind of politics and tensions are involved. I'm afraid I'm unable to say that. Yeah, yeah, Ajari, yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry I haven't looked at it, but it is certainly a very important question to look at. Yeah. Thank you very much for your Any other questions? <laughs> Thank you very much, John. Oh, thanks very much. Thank you.